folks, this is Jason from The High Route to intro episode six of The High Route podcast. In this episode, we go all in on ski traverses, and specifically, we go sort of all in on the storied Redline Traverse, a near mythical High Sierra route extending from near Mount Whitney on the southern end and Mammoth on the northern terminus. The red line was first completed in the early 80s by Alan Bard, Tom Carter, Chris Cox, and a host of others who intermittently joined the crew. One cool aspect of the traverse is the idea that the first traversers left their route details somewhat mystical. Sure, there's a start and end point and clear high points in between, but the idea of the red line stands more than a prescriptive route. For other would-be redline traversers, Bard, Carter, and Cox left a mountain range where others could make their own approximation of the redline. We connect with IFMGA guide Jeb Porter and second-year law student at the University of Utah, Spencer Dillon, to chat about their redline experiences. Porter completed the route in 2017, whereas Dillon and a partner completed the traverse in the spring of 2023. You can check out Dylan's Redline Trip Report, which was published December 1st on the SchemoCo website. I'm going to take a minute to interrupt the introduction, as we normally do, to plug our reader-supported website, The High Route, where our simple mission is to cover human-powered turn-making in the backcountry. Listen up for the site address because we have hyphens in the name. It's the-high-route.com. One more time, the-high-route.com, and hyphen is definitely not spelled out. It's just a dash between the words. Our podcasts are free, yet are not free to produce or host on the server. If you are enjoying our podcast, please consider supporting the site. That's it for the plug. Now it's on to the show featuring Jed Porter, Spencer Dillon, and The Red Line. So I'm psyched we all connected. And it sounds like you two have at least connected in some capacity electronically, email-wise. Is that correct? Yeah, I bothered Jed for beta before my trip. Yeah, and I and I just revisited that email thread this yeah. morning. To- and just so you know, Jed, I never opened the GPX. That was a moment of weakness. Yeah. Ooh, nice. Yeah, yeah. Not that, cool. not that we skied as high line as you did, but <laughs> I was I was like, that's uh-huh. cool. and then no, that's great. we did our own thing. For you. Yeah. That's, that's discipline right there. Yeah. Spencer, give a brief intro. Jed, give a brief intro. And then I want to start right away with how you two digitally encounter one another via email. Sure. So I'm just some guy and I live in Salt Lake, was a very briefly a... a a low-level mountain guide, um, and I am now in law school, but uh, got into skiing to backcountry ski and got into backcountry skiing to kind of go places in the mountains, and I've been starting to figure out how ski traverses work in the last couple of years, and um, yeah, the red line has been, uh, ever since I learned about ski traverses, that was kind of the, the, height, of the height of what I wanted to do. Um, but yeah, just some guy living in Salt Lake. 
Jed. I'm a I'm an adventure skier and an all season mountain guide. I live in Driggs, Idaho. Uh pertinent to this conversation. I lived in Bishop, California for most of my adult life, twelve years. Uh I guess it's been like ten years now since I pulled up roots there. So I came across I'll just, you know, I'll interject a little bit. I came across Spencer's name originally and the name didn't register, but he had written a cool narrative story but also a trip report about a traverse in the wind rivers and it happened to be posted a few months maybe after i had gone into the wind rivers and it turns out that the the set of tracks that we saw maybe on day going up and over texas pass is when we (laughs) noticed the tracks um were spencer's and his partner's tracks turns out and jed is an IFMGA certified guide. Uh, I'll, we'll link to his site uh, in the show notes and so forth, but uh, has a very deep resume that I'm not going to go into. But what brings us together is this discussion on traverses in, gen- in general and specifically, and I'm going to go to my, let me go to my notes here. Traverses in general, and specifically the red line traverse. Um, before we really jump into the red line, can you just, so people have, can conceptualize a little bit what the red line traverse is, Jed, can you give us a, just a brief intro to, to what that may be before we do a deep dive into it? The concept of the red line traverse dates to the early 80s with a, a, a distinct crew uh, of, of guides and adventure skiers with various connections to the Eastern Sierra. Uh, and they, that team, with some core members and a, and a, some peripheral others in and out, uh, skied over a series of, of seasons, a couple seasons, from variously reported as Mount Whitney or Mount Langley in the v- southern end of the highest bit of the California Sierra to Mammoth Lakes in in at the north end of the highest peaks center of the sierra in the grand scheme of things the red line is a reference to uh the the geopolitical divide between or geopolitical and geologic divide between the parks on one side and the forest on the other and the the great basin on one side and the uh, pacific watershed on the other Marked on the on his you know traditional USGS maps with in red, and they skied close to that, uh, as close as they could while while having enjoyable skiing and uh, and such. Um, not real clear exactly what they did by design, and we'll probably likely get into that. Yeah, we're gonna get into that, which I like. Um, well, let's take a step back. You know, Jed, you have a long. I mean, you you. I think did this did the red line traverse back in 2017. Do I have that right? Yes. Uh, Spencer, you did this last spring, which would be spring of 23. Correct. And I know this about both of you. You didn't just throw yourselves at this with no experience. Um, and this is not just a simple traverse from point A to point B. It's like uh, a lot of topography, a lot of vertical gain, a lot of descent. 
typical hazards that we would associate with the backcountry have to be kind of considered and navigated. And part of this question stems from like how skiing is portrayed. A lot in the media, it's like the exciting, the 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 huck, the whatever, the speed. I mean, this is like a big movement. It's like straight lining. I mean, I watched a video the other day of a youngster like. It was a quite a long couloir and the videography was amazing. It just seemed to go and go and go, but it was like straight line speed. Traverse is a little bit not better or worse. It's kind of the antithesis of that. It's slower, a little more methodical. And I'd like to get each of your interpretation of like why traversing and what's the appeal? The appeal to me is the wilderness immersion. I came to the mountains for, for wilderness uh, and the athletic part of it. I've come to very much enjoy but it, the my my draw to the mountains is is wilderness and the in that way a couple of different ways of of skiing in the wilderness you know typical traditional base camp or single peak expeditions of course are in a wilderness immersion but also traverses are too and i like both when i i you know i've done 20 some expeditions and probably the most memorable ones are those that go point to point for whatever reason, I, I couldn't put my finger on why that is. The the common thread, though, is is that wilderness. Okay, Spencer. Traverses to me are, uh, it's kind of like what skiing was invented to do, right? The like, when you talk about these like 6,000 year old skis, they were like long Nordic skis meant from going point to point and kind of traveling places. And um, fall line skiing is really amazing. And obviously, on the red line is kind of about fall line skiing, but um traverses are feel like a pretty natural use of the tool right and you wrote about this too jed but being able to cover miles and miles and miles just on your edges and kind of get across basins feels like a really natural way to use the tool and a really special way to kind of travel through mountains and unlike other even in the sierra there's a lot of like nice off-trail walking like skiing especially traverses, you can kind of do whatever you want. You know, there's no like, oh, we're on the trail here and then we're going to hit this pass. You're pretty free to take the high line, the low line, ski a few turns, hold the, um, hold for the pass, you know, all these sorts of things. And I find that to be really captivating. It feels like a very freeing endeavor. There's nothing like crossing a whole basin in 20 minutes. That feels pretty special. Or, you know, it's funny. I was just, I'm surprised I didn't pull this up, but I typed in Mount Whitney. So we see kind of like southern end-ish of the Sierras looking north. And it it is sort of stunning landscape, like Alabama Hills, where you have kind of a rift, an opening between, I think the White Mountains are on the eastern side. As far as you can see looking north, uh, you know, the Sierras extend. And it's in particular, Jed, living in Bishop, you're probably staring up and looking up at those hills quite a bit, thinking about the next adventure. Um, What kind of triggered you to go, okay, I'm going to go for this. And you did it in a particular style. So one is, can you talk a little bit about the decision to go and in your own way replicate that? I have spring 82 sort of written down in question marks when that first sort of traverse went down or the red line traverse. but what triggered you to to go do it? And and also, what was your vision for it? Because this whole idea, as you noted earlier, it's like, 
kind of a nebulous like specific there are no specifics like from this point to that point to that point it's a little bit of make your own adventure you know i I moved to bishop as as a in my the formative years of my skiing and fell in immediately with a a mentor in a crowd that was uh, at a very adventurous interpretation on backcountry skiing so right off the bat the skiing you know we'd we'd ski day trip powder hunting and corn skiing but the all that was preparation for the longer trips into the into the wild between my initial wilderness motivations as mentioned and that first bishop crowd i fell in with uh you know the 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 pinnacle of a ski season and, and the ski experience was always long traverses and then there in 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 the guidebooks in the the historical lore in the in the barroom conversations that red line traverse was the the biggest of the biggest and the baddest of the bad so yeah it was just part of the the general community vibe was that that's the coolest thing you could do in the sierra at that time in that crowd i was in and then it took years to get to get, get, consider myself ready for it and it took even more years to to brainstorm the realities and then it took even more years to find the right conditions i moved away before it even was a reasonable prospect for instance uh and then in terms of how to do it the the creative aspect of it uh was it was appealing you know there's there's um great credit goes to the the bard and carter and company for for keeping it vague they had just the right amount of of promotional self-promotional uh aspects to their personalities to to make sure we all knew what they did and knew that they did it they were they're somewhat legendary for touring the, the ski regions with their slideshows and stuff and, and made sure that the idea was out there but also made sure it wasn't prescribed so that was cool and I, I spent, before 2017, I spent, you know, thousands of days in the high Sierra and had uh, intimate and general familiarity with the whole range to uh, making the route ultimately was, was sort of the easy part. What helped a lot was those conditions that season. I could do exactly what I wanted to do uh, in terms of conditions. And yeah, that part was kind of just fantasize at the map and it would work and it worked. When you say, let me just jump in here for one second, Spencer. When you say like optimal conditions or the conditions were lining up, I have my idea of what that might look like. But to, that that means I'm assuming like lots of snow, snow availability, and s- some some stability, right? Or predictive stability. Is that accurate? Yeah, ha- hazards, surfaces, and and weather. Snow snow hazard. Snow surfaces and, and atmospheric climactic matters. And then in California, and, and that's the case everywhere we are, you know, every ski region, we look at those same things. And then in California, the coverage is, is a crux. It, it's, it's feast or famine there. And, uh, these biggest of the big lines and objectives require fat coverage. Uh, and, and, yeah, so those, of those four criteria, 
Weather's pretty good in California, but it doesn't always awesome. Uh, stability's pretty good, especially in the spring, but not always awesome. Um, it's the surfaces and the the coverage that that really define one's experience. And 2017 was fat and smooth. Uh, I, I, I'm real curious to hear more about Spencer's experience in 23 because I went to California to ski this year as well, and it, I did not have smooth surfaces uh, to the point of like notab- notably not smooth. And look, and um, Spencer's nodding in, in agreement. It, uh, 2017 was special in that way, and I, and I want, like uh, I've skied big years and skied lots of seasons in the Sierra, and, and the coverage and the smoothness were just perfect. I came to the red line from Jed. I, you know, as I might, you know, I'm, you know, a little bit of a neophyte in comparison. I'm, you know, six or seven years into touring and last couple of years was like, I think I'm ready to start shopping around to do the traverses and started looking around at what was there on the internet. And this was, I think, right after you had published your story, Jed. And it's like, oh, wow, that's definitely like the next year that Sierra is in condition. That's got to be the Apple because um, it is... I guess, as Jed points out, it's kind of like this perfect mix of amazing terrain and density and access and the, you know, that California has got typically pretty good weather and pretty good stability and like pretty well consolidated snowpack. And you're not as sensitive to these kind of finding less isothermic patches, right? And less unskiable terrain and less terrible, terrible weather. Um, And that was, and it kind of, became quickly the um, the thing that I was going to do the next time it was good, uh, no matter what, uh, which was how I ended up doing it. But we, uh, for having the re- more recordist year than 2017, the conditions were a little surprising to me. But again, I don't have thousands of days in this year. I've got, you know, guided a couple Whitney trips back in the day and spent a little time down there and a little time on in that area and like a couple days at Mammoth, right? So that... For me, the red line was actually all pretty much on site, like the whole way through, um, which was a really interesting experience. Um, a lot of no beta on site, you know, um, but we, yeah, we didn't have it quite as smooth, but the weather was generally quite good, which is the California promise. Um, right. As Jason, you know, from the year before in the winds, the weather was, uh, quite bad, uh, which makes the whole experience pretty terrible. We had pretty sweet weather, weather until we didn't. So, oh, we were like ping pong ball every day. It was it snowed almost every day on us, like which is <laughs> doesn't make life terribly easy. Jed, Spencer, what do you attribute the non-smooth surface? You know, when I think of like it's a big, um, you know, obviously a big snow year. Uh, why the unsmooth surface or cupped or whatever you would describe it? last season when were you there this year spencer we started mm, i think may 5th or 6th so we were a little late on the. and what was what was your experience with surfaces uh first couple days was great it was super cold you know six inches of fresh on a pretty smooth surface but as we kept going it kept getting hotter and we were seeing a lot more loose debris and things were getting pretty wet and heavy and um, not that supportable. And then, you know, as we were going north, it got chunkier and cuppier. But um, there was also, there had been a big cycle in April, a big heat cycle in April that we were kind of, a lot of that, you know, nice fluffy six inches was on top of 
a lot of refrozen debris, which was not the funnest. <laughs> yeah, the I, I I didn't ski a huge traverse. I skied Trans Sierra once this year, and and earlier though, mm-hmm. uh, late April or early May. And the month of April this year was was warm and dry. Uh, and what that means in the Sierra between latitude, therefore sun angle, wind, uh, and and you know, largely big storms with long dry periods in between is is all it's all it has all the drivers of of gnarly surface texture and all the drivers of of tough surface conditions otherwise um yeah and for for some reason 2017 had less of that i started it was a big year i started in sort of the last big storm of of april to smooth things out and then it very very gently warmed up and that's sort of what you want uh you know, you need the fat coverage to cover the big boulders and fill the couloirs in, and then you need the final top coat to smooth it out before a gentle warm-up. Um, and anything other than that results in some sort of crappy surface, you know? It, it, it's a pretty narrow recipe for for the perfection. Yeah, it was a funny, coming from the Wasatch, we had a, a wild April with, you know, 130 inch storm and then 60 degree mountaintop temps and everything slid off and it was uh, a, little, a little too much of everything a little too quickly and it was showing up in this year. I was like, oh yeah, they got some of that too, you know. One <laughs> um, of the things that I think is is cool in particular about the red line, maybe the winds, um, it's a little more, you know, nebulous. You can call it what you want. In this particular instance, there's a a mental landscape sort of conceptualization of like what is the red line traverse or what is the Wind River high route, so to speak. And and there's a little bit of I like to think there's some latitude in there for each individual to to again have their own adventure, find their own route. Um, I'm curious. Because neither of you in your own trip reports, it's still, it's like there's a starting point, there's an end point. I think, Jed, you talked about skiing 25 kind of cool, either couloirs or kind of lines. Do I have that roughly right? Yeah. And the original folks were like 20. Um, So there's a little bit of a benchmark, like, oh, there's some cool skiing just, you know, as an objective alone. If you're if you're not even doing the traverse, it, you know, from going from point A to point B, and really what I'm getting at is this whole idea of kind of letting the landscape dictate what the traverse is, and it being a little bit more nebulous rather than, and we're going to circle all the way back to the GPS tracks, like rather than like yeah, I've got a GPS here and I'm following it from point A to point B. Can can you guys both speak to that sort of general style? And also allowing sort of the legacy of the red line to live is just like, yeah, it is a general line here and it's a high route, but we're not painting it from point to point to point for each person that may come in the future to have their own adventure. It's a long-winded question, but do you kind of get the gist of it? 
Yeah, I think that's like kind of the point of the red line is that it's um, it's it's your own adventure, right? And I mean, I'll be the first to say that Jed skied up, I think, definitely a higher line than I did, right? For various reasons, mostly due to Jed being sendier than I am. Um, but I think that, I mean, to throw my fist up to the kids these days, it's like if you have the line, there's no adventure to it, right? And this kind of, especially for us, since we are on-siting everything, every every saddle or every peak, we'd look over the over the north side and say, oh, I don't know, are we going to have to turn around on this one or does this one go? You know, or like, is there going to be some down climbing, right? We had to, we had a few uh, ice cruxes in some uh, low down and some coulars, which was on the descent, which was always exciting. Uh, but I think that is part of, you know, as Jed terms it, adventure skiing, right? Is this, when you have all the beta, it loses this whole other dimension that I think makes it so exciting. And I think that is like, I really appreciate that that was the style in which this was kind of conceived because I think that's a really huge part of the joy of skiing. Yeah, there's, I, I very much appreciate the, the adventuresome mentality and the creative uh, aspect of it. The room for interpretation, the room for different conditions, the room for different abilities to all have the same spirit that, so many, many different people in different scenarios and different circumstances can have a, a, a red line inspired experience. I, I think it's entirely possible that the long view now, what are we, 40 years from, from Carter and Bard and company? Uh, we're, we, we do this in rock climbing too. We sort of mythologize those early, early efforts, uh, but the fact of the matter is, is they didn't have a GPS to record it with. And, you know, mountain athletes of the 70s and 80s were notorious for their participation in, in mind-altering substances. They might not even remember what they were doing, you know, <laughs> uh, for better or for worse. You know, uh, and here we are. Here we are with with this idea and and, and no, no script um, that slowly... Uh, degrading quite frankly I, I, no no thanks to me i've sent the gps file to anyone who'll ask and the list of lines i skied there's you know since i did it there's been a backcountry magazine article there's you know here we are talking about it there's a uh, a film of sorts coming out about it. You're either you hip to greg and jenna's film yeah i heard about that actually yesterday yeah <laughs> Uh, so it's, it's slowly demystifying it. And I don't know how I feel about that. You know, we're, uh, my participation in the, in the red line traverse has served to demystify it. But those who, those, the original protagonists weren't shy either. You know, they were like like i said you know legendary traveling promoters um so it's 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 a funny community i think of it more of a community thing how the, how the community processes this sort of thing and, and and generates an idea like this executes and processes and shares it is fascinating and often it takes just a few weeks for this to happen or or months but we're looking at 40 years of it which is you know, 
we because it's taken so long, we can look, watch it more closely and, and more patiently. Um, I don't know. There, there, there's something there, something fascinating about the, the community and historical trajectory of this particular adventure. I, I'll be honest. Like I expected, you know, it, I knew we were obviously going to be talking about this. The red line has been off my radar, not for any good reason then. I'm kind of focused, even though I'd probably be a much closer drive for me to go to the Sierra than to Wyoming, but I've been like myopically focused on finishing off a project in Wyoming. So, but that said, the dearth of information on the red line is profound right? Like you go, it's like you Google it, at least the things that pop up, it's like Jed's stuff, which is again, like just the right amount of information. There's a gear list for my taste shows incredible restraint in terms of disclosing what is there. Similarly with Spencer's piece is going to be published on the Schemoco website on December 1st. I've read it. Uh, it was awesome. And it too was very much in the spirit of the original intent of the red line as kind of like being a little bit of a teaser out there and not teasing in a bad way, but like allowing each person to have their adventure. But why do you think in this day and age, and it sounds like things may pivot with a film coming out. um, But that said, why the restraint, right? When you think of everything else out there, you know, Jed, you brought like climbing, you could go anywhere and it's like, boy, you're going to find a file. Even with skiing, there are some files, but there seems to be something a little bit sacred about this particular traverse. I think with the winds, there still is like not a lot of like, here's my point to point. I mean, Spencer, you yeah. and I have been comparing our, our two routes a little bit. Um, but why? Yeah, I'm just curious if either one of you can talk about this this restraint, which I think is, uh, you know, maybe that's a loaded term, but 40 years, that's a long time for something to be out there, something as mythical as this, but I still am not like popping up the fat map and seeing a pasted like red line of someone's GPS track or GPX file, so to speak. Yeah. Who wants to tackle that? Or you both can tackle it. Two different generations here. Um, I mean, I think my my restraint is like kind of in the style of right the from what i understand of the east side ski community but also maybe it's not my place to uh as you know to pop the lid on this special thing but i feel like when you get the right another climbing analogy if if you read the beta and it's blow by blow every move of the nose on el cap right it kind of takes the sparkle away and it feels like for lack of a better word it turns it into like pornography right it's less about the story and more uh, it's like blow by blow by blow by blow and i think that to my kind of earlier comment it's like you don't get to have your own experience because your experience becomes mediated by this like oh well i'm not skiing the line that jed skied or like you know bard and co skied this other spot and i didn't do that right and this like maybe the malaise of comparison that we find ourselves in in the outdoor world as a whole, this sort of restraint, I think, combats that a little bit and lets us have these experiences that other people have had without kind of having to fit yourself into the broader narrative of people have done X and Y and Z and 
in this amount of time. And, you know, I think that that liberates people to have their own fun. That's a good point. I wasn't even thinking about the whole like time thing, the FKT thing, but yes, the time thing reigns, looms large as well. Yeah. Jed, do you have any thoughts on that? I, uh, I, I couldn't tell you why we've been so well restrained on, on, on spraying about this thing. I, I'm proud of us for doing it, I guess. I think it's cool that maybe the time is right. You know, it's, uh, we, we understand the, the, limited resource that is uncertainty this especially this this crowd of long distance adventure skiers uh may value that even even more than the typical citizen out there it's hard to the, the red line traverse period is hard you know uh and that it just hasn't been done that much you know there hasn't been that much action up there from which someone to spill the beans if you will uh but there's obviously some intentional thing about it and and why that is like i said maybe it's as simple as just a small number of participants maybe there's just a small number of us interested in it period that could be you know what's the i, I i'm certainly not gonna be able I wouldn't I can't sell this as a mountain guide so what's the point in publicizing it one way to look at it it's not my my MO one way or another but just it, it, just from that I'm curious from a business standpoint is that because of a permitting issue or just because like the scope of the the trip that you couldn't guide it yeah yeah it's 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 way it's way too hard it's only there's only one Dave Riggs out there <laughs> There's our little, you got that, Dave? I don't know. I think, <laughs> how's his knee doing? He, we just climbed in Red Rocks and he's, the guy's amazing. Yeah. Yeah. But, but the clients, you know, the, the, the clients like that are, are few and far between is the point. That's a whole nother podcast that I have on my schedule down the road is like clients like Dave and guides like you. Right and like, there's only one client like Dave. <laughs> I'm no, aspirational. The, I'm asking. There, there's, there's that. That's the, that's the, the biggest potential for growth in the guiding business is, is the super high end. So like, 19th century, right? These like first ascensionists getting guided on Mont Blanc, like the old, yeah. the very origins of mountain guiding, right? These like sandiest clients in the world. Right. That's a great point. Yeah, we're ready for that again. One of the things I'm also interested in, and and Spencer. Um, well, either one of you obviously have, have similar, I, I would say the styles that you executed this are similar, but there's some big differences. Um, and I'll have each of you describe your, your style, but yep. you went with a partner the whole way, Spencer, and I'll have you talk a little bit about, um, how you resupplied. Cause I think that speaks a little bit to, to style, uh, Jed, it seems like for the most part you were solo and correct me if I'm wrong and just we'll start with you just because we'll go chronologically. You maybe had a partner for, you had two partners for a day and a half or something or two days. And then a, one of those folks had to skedaddle and then you had a, that, that remaining partner stuck around for a few days and then you were solo. So 
that speaks to style. But I, what I want each of you to do is kind of describe your style and why you chose that style. Uh, sure. So we had two, I learning from our trip in the winds the year before, where we carried like 12 days of food at once. We had some friends generously bring food to us. Uh, so we did not leave uh, the route that we were going to be doing ideally. Um, so we got, we had friends bring us food after a week. And then my roommate um, came up for a, an, after the second week and skied with us for the last five or six days to Mammoth. So he had a very heavy bag coming up with 20 days of food <laughs> from Aspendale. Um, but yeah, I think it was, the style was similar to what, I mean, we were trying to emulate, frankly, Jed's trip, right? This kind of stay high, keep skiing the line that you want to ski, right? And figure out how to not have to go down um, and to kind of keep undeviated and to not, I guess, have some sort of, you know, gimmick or whatever. And I think if we had been, if I had been living on the east side that winter, I might have cashed gear, right? But I was rocked up the day after my last final of the year for law school. Um, but I think that was the, that was the vision is to top down ever forwards, right? This kind of, and for us, it was, you know, we'll see what the next down is like, but, um, yeah, we ended it. We had to retreat one or two things that we got to the top of that didn't go. But, um, apart from one or two pitches, it was, we didn't ski anything that we scanned, right? This kind of, we skipped some good skiing because it would have been a kind of a more convoluted line, right? We were trying to draw the highest, straightest line. Whereas I think, I don't know, you can speak to this, Jed, but you skied some, some more proper skiing and kind of looking at it, I think you maybe had a little squigglier line in places. But um, yeah, I think that was our vision was to see how high and logical we could get. And my friend Matt is was not as enamored with this concept of the red line as uh, we are. And he was kind of like, yeah, let's do some fun skiing. And I would, you know, try and get him to go up to something else that was kind of off, the, off our path and be like, no, that doesn't make any sense. I don't want to do that. You know, so he was, he was a, a check on this kind of um, higher and higher perspective. That's, that's way cool to be, to be doing that on site, you know, uh, it's that's super complex. Well done in that regard. Yeah, Thanks. that's very neat. Yeah, it was stressful, for sure, right? Yeah, well, <laughs> way to go. Yeah, so the, the solo the solo aspect of my style approach, I guess. Uh, I, I like being alone. I, I like solo things. So there's that. But I, I have a great buddy, Ian Ian McElhaney, guide there in Mammoth. Uh, not a skier, dedicated climber. Well, I mean, he skis. Obviously, he skis. But it's it is sort it is sort of funny to, that he that he participated in, in in this little bit of high Sierra skiing history, given his disdain for for the endeavor. Uh, wow, Cl climber who skis? Okay, but <laughs> phenomenal athlete, and, and wouldn't 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 trade him for anybody. But the ski part was a challenge. So he just he he was off. He was he was off work the say the first four days when I was there, and so so I just mentioned it casually to him. Want to ski the first part with me? Uh so he he skied with me from from Whitney Portal to Onion Valley, and then he arranged uh, a buddy of his, Skid Sam. I, I'd never met him before. I haven't really interacted with him since. Uh who 
came down to Whitney with us from Mammoth. Ian lives in Mammoth. Drove down to Whitney, left Ian's car in Onion Valley along the way. All three of us drive my car down to the portal. Uh, Sam comes in and skis Whitney with us and then scoots out and drives my car back to Mammoth. So it was a logistical choice to, to include Sam. He turned out to be super sharp and, and had a great day with us, a great day and a half with us. Uh, but his participation was, was inspired mainly by the, the car shuttle <laughs> need. <laughs> and then my car was sitting in Mammoth ready for me when I was done. Um, yeah, it, it just, 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 just the way it shook out. It didn't, it wasn't like this grand, stylistic uh decision making process other than that I, I i like to be alone uh and but also wanted wanted some ian time in the process and needed my car shuttled back up <laughs> <laughs> how each one of you respectively like what was the how many days miles total vert is that being crude by being reductionist here, but just kind of, I know you're, I mean, I've seen some stats. I'm just kind of curious if we can just get that thrown out there. And I don't know whose stat, maybe Jed, did you have some sort of graph for vert and all that? Yeah, I did. It was, it was 16 days, start to finish, uh, 80,000 vertical feet, 100, 125 miles. Also 16 days, as I remember. Um, I think about 70K and 150 miles, 160 miles. We had we had to do some dog-legging, unfortunately, but there was some evasive maneuvers to be had. So we had some more traversing miles and less Kular miles, but hard to rack up Kular miles, you know? <laughs> the Sierra is a good place to do it. If you're gonna, if you're gonna count your Kulars in miles, go to, go to the High Sierra. <laughs> One of the things, actually, it was interesting, and I, this came up in my original conversation with you, Spencer, I think. We were just talking about the nature of traversing in the winds, the nature of traversing in the Sierras. Um, and I'm just going to throw this question out there. Like, what is the, the idea of proximity to an out, an exit? What is that like? in the Sierras under normal conditions, right? I'm just curious, like I've gone into the Sierras to done a couple, you know, like objective skiing and I've gone in from like, I always call it the mobile station, Levining, headed into the Yosemite that way up the road, skied in. Um, so I'm just curious, like from a proximity standpoint, how does that inform traversing through the Sierras. And when I say proximity, proximity to like exits, highways, what have you. Yeah. I mean, basically with, with good train familiarity and a buddy and Bishop with a four wheel drive vehicle, you're never more than, you know, four hours from Carl's jr. Uh, on the traverse. <laughs> oh yeah. Wow. Yeah. A, a, pa a pass or two, a drainage glide, a trail, mild bushwhack, four-wheel drive road is the worst case scenario it's pretty convenient that way and, and that's you know my, my wild snow article i alluded to, to to you know low commitment ski expeditioning and that's what i that's what i mean there i think the phrase you used was alpine bouldering with yeah 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 low, low, quote air quotes low commitment yeah totally. uh but you, that means you have to decide to keep going all the time, which for my brain is is way more taxing than than just being being truly geographically logistically committed. 
yeah, I would agree. The Sierra felt very, from that commitment standard, very casual compared to the wins. We bailed, you know, with uh, various issues from about as close as one could be. And it was a full day and like 11 transitions and a bunch of grizzly bear tracks to a trailhead, you know, and like hip deep isothermic skinning. And it was, (laughs) it was like a, a real full day effort to get out. And yeah, the Sierras, once you're done, you just pull the plug and you're going down, you know, and if you're really on the red line, you're like looking down at 395, right? Um, It's right there. Okay. Um, Well, Jed, you alluded to this, and I think this is just any big day in the mountains. Could be any sort of hard climbing objective, uh, really any adventure, but it's maybe more difficult when you're, like you said, like Carl Jr.'s, if that's, you know, is like four hours away (laughs) and you're hungry and you're fixated on food. But how did you, each of one of you respectively, stay so committed to like forward progress? making it happen. Yeah. Sort of the mental game. And I suppose Jed, you know, you're by yourself most of the time and maybe you had a sat phone. I don't know. Yeah. I had, I had a sat phone, uh, cell signal. You get cell signal periodically. I could get, get, get oh. new Kindle books here and there via, via 4g, uh, from the high points. Um, Dang. I had, I had, Largely favorable experiences all along. You know, I, I never had a, you know, a couple poor weather moments, but just, yeah, favorable experiences. It helps. Um, I wanted it. I wanted to walk into Mammoth at the end. Uh, I had, you know, a, a deteriorating marriage at home. There wasn't much to go home for at that moment, which is a whole different story. Yeah, I'd say that summarizes it. I would, uh, similar, I guess, similar perspective, not the marriage part, but um, I was also really committed to skiing the red line. And as my partner Matt will attest to, perhaps a little too committed at times. There was a little bit of hand-wringing, but um, yeah, very interested in the idea, right, of this kind of like getting there. And, you know, maybe it's my own vanity, but I definitely wanted to, to do it right to like send uh, versus bail out early, but I think for me, so I just finished my first year of law school before this, and I spent the the red line was my my little carrot to to make it through this school year, which I didn't particularly enjoy, um, as one kind of usually doesn't. Um, but I spent a lot of the winter, you know, training and planning and kind of mostly skiing for fun, but all with this vision of coming for this trip. And so there was a lot of momentum behind me, I think. And there was a lot, I did a lot of, you know, as much as the Wasatch has big skiing, um, getting ready for this. And so I was feeling strong. I think similar to Jed, I, we had a couple moments, mostly booting in like really deep isothermic snow, but that were beleaguering, but otherwise it was super pleasant, right? We had, it was like every day you ski great lines and you're like out in the mountains and you don't see anybody and it's, you know, apart from being tired, there was not much to complain about. Um, but I think this, like, I think also the scarcity of it, right. It's, you know, it, it was in this past year mostly and in, in 2017 and Jed, you could probably say when the last time someone was, could have skied the red line, but it doesn't happen that often. 
Uh, and so I think the, the scarcity of it was another big motivator that it's like, well, who knows, you know, maybe it's next year, maybe it's in 20 years that the red line will be skiable again. Um, and so that was a big, a big stick in addition to the carrot. I mean, I don't know you too well, Spencer, we've spoken a few times and each time I'm like, I need to get this guy on board to do some more writing. Jed, I know that historically you've had a really good eye for gear, um, and good recommendations that, that have played out successfully for a lot of folks. Yeah, I guess it's 2017. It's not exactly like a lifetime in backcountry skiing, but things have evolved a wee bit, um, but not a ton. Just curious, uh, anything that you might bring now that you didn't bring and anything that you did bring that you're like, oh my gosh, I regret bringing that. I used like rec class skivo race skis, Dinafit PDG skis and boots and they're race bindings at the time, which are plastic. The next tour I did with them in 2018, they broke. Um, so I, and at that time, you know, we skied on Mount St. Elias in race gear. I skied in Peru that t- that time frame on race gear and thought that was just the best idea I'd ever had. Uh, and I still keep race skis with adjustable heels around for like expedition skiing, but I don't. I don't use them with the same enthusiasm as I did at that time in my life. Uh, I'm not any fitter, so I don't know why I justify heavier gear now. Uh, but I would, I would, I would size up in skis, same boots, you know, rec, rec class race boots, race bindings on 77 underfoot skis, you know, uh, you know, race construction, lightweight skis, the, uh, just for more fun skiing down short you know like i said light construction but slightly more robust than than race you what? know racing racer training skis like 170 or 160 uh i've got these i've been skiing on the movement race pro 77 for stuff like this lately and i think i have them in 170 okay. centimeters long yeah okay 170 whatever their whatever their number is closest to 170 172 or something and boot you'd still stick with like the newer iteration of like a pdg boot wow i think so i've had some pretty horrible experiences with race i i too was like race gear and then all of a sudden it was like you know i had a couple of weird funky experiences i'm like one is a snap ski and i'm like yeah maybe not race gear well, yeah, I, um, I, yeah, I don't I don't break ski gear very much for some reason. I'm not tiny, uh, but I, I just haven't broken ski gear other than, yeah, old, old stuff that's ready to, should have been retired anyway. And before we jump to you, Spencer, I'm just curious, like, what average weight of your pack on that race gear in 2017? 30 pounds, probably, to, to start from each cache, or, or starting each leg. I did three legs between... Three three self-contained legs. Started out full pack, replenished, kept skiing, replenished one more time, finished. Uh, yeah, thirty pounds. One one gear note that I that I haven't tuned into too much, except is the is the shelter situation. I use the. I, I, I think there's. I was quite particular about shelter, and at the time, my solution was the uh, the beta mid, the beta light, black diamond beta light, sil nylon, two pole zippered closed floorless tent 
weighed around a pound. Uh, I could fully seal it up. It was has a long, narrow profile. Uses ski poles to hold up, you know. And and I'm not sure. I sort of pay attention, but I'm not fully plugged in. I'm not sure there's yet anything better. The you know the ultralight backpacking crew is is real good about those floorless ski pole trekking pole tents, and but they've all changed the shape, makes them more livable. But you it used to be you'd sleep. In a two pole, a two ski pole tent, you you sleep with the chastity pole in between you, a team of two. Uh, so I had a long, long axis. Now that you sleep with the poles on either side of your heads, so you both sleep in the middle, and there's poles. I don't. People can picture this if they're familiar with these these types of tents, and that's not nearly as wind ready as the the long axis pole construction for one thing and uh and then the other wrinkle that, that i think ski traversers in in the high and windy ranges need to consider is the the get, being able to truly seal it up these you know the modern ultralight backpacker style shelters you often can't seal them entirely and any sort of overlap will definitely keep the rain out but that's we're not we're concerned about driven snow, and I, I I don't know I'd be curious if there's if there's something out there that that replicates that and, and using modern fabrics gets it down to a half pound instead of a pound I don't know. Spencer gear gear mods yeah what did you take for skis and boots and yeah what would you yeah um so for skis I had a pair of ski trab maximas which are 90 underfoot and i'm six feet tall i think they were like high 170s and i love those skis they're just my absolute favorite and i think for the slightly especially later on we were skiing like you know a foot of mank foot and a half of mank i didn't i don't think i could have gotten away with anything narrower i think i would have crashed more than i did you know um love the skis and i hate that i pulled a toe on the last day on them because I, you know, the tech said it was water ingression in the core from, you know, I'd used the skis pretty hard for a couple of years. And I think to Jed's point, I can't really fault them for pulling out, you know, um, I think it was very reasonable for them, <laughs> for them to give up, uh, at that moment, but I had, you know, various fix it gear. So it was, you know, we were kept moving. It was no big deal, but, um, sad, uh, bindings. Yeah. Race binding super light one fifties again, wonderful super high lateral release which i also like um didn't come out unless i wanted to um and then similar to jed like kind of entry level race boots fisher traverses um which i found to be similarly 30 pound bag usually uh i find to be like quite skiable if you don't go too fast right once once you start going too fast then things fall apart but um I think figuring out you got to change your style when you ski with a big backpack for sure. And you have some, some different movement. Um, but if you can figure that out, then it's not as intimidating, I think, as it seems. Um, or, you know, you go out with your day pack and you're like, Oh my God, I'll never be able to ski race gear in the backcountry." And I, I actually spent most of the winter skiing with about 20 pounds of ankle weights in my backpack and going over the handlebars all the time, day skiing and, when I put the backpack on to start the red line, I was totally ready, which was really nice. That was not uh, 
a big drawback for me. But, um, and then actually I would say we, we had a Dyneema mid for a, a shelter. We had a four person mid, so pretty big footprint, but, um, we found that it's also sealable and the kind of the whole deal. And that was very comfy for two. And I think that there are some two person sized single pole mids, but we had the, um, that was wonderful. And I think it, it didn't suffer from some of the problems that the sil nylon tents suffer from, which is the kind of stretch overnight, right? You can't, if you know wind's coming and you get them all drum tight, you wake up in the morning and they're baggy again. Um, and I, we were able to, uh, guide out pretty well. And yeah, I think the, the thing that I was surprised going in is, you know, we didn't, we had enough stuff with us that we could guy the crap out of our tent without any other, you know, it was like, Oh, shovel blade probe, you know, crampon bag, right. We were able to guy it out really aggressively for some pretty windy days with just the odds and ends that we had with us, which was really nice. What, what did you have for tech gear spikes and ropes and stuff? Yeah. Well, we, so yeah. And the thing I wouldn't bring again is shoes. That was stupid. But, um, we had, we started with a 30 meter six mil cord and like us, you know, and one 240 centimeter sling and, you know, a carabiner or two, if we needed to wrap a chalk stone. Um, but we ended up sending that down with our first, uh, resupply cause we weren't using it. And then of course, like three days later, we got to a spot where it would have been real nice, but, uh, we ended up down climbing some like AI three, but, uh, in our ultralight aluminum stuff, but yeah, single, um, single aluminum ax each and like race, like the 120 gram schemo crampons and yeah. And ski crampons obviously. And those came in pretty helpful, but, um, yeah, it was, you know, the kind of usual light single travel, but we were out of, we sent the rope down pretty quick. Um, curious what were coldest temp. I mean, I, I sleep so cold, so I'm like, it's hard for, you know, I start packing weight on fast in a pack because it's like I'm bringing extra layers than a big sleeping bag. Uh, curious what were temps like, cold, you know, coldest morning of the morning on average for each one of you? Right, teens, typical, typical California, eleven thousand foot temperatures in in April, May, or lows in the teens, Fahrenheit. So that what that meant in my case was a, a proper inflatable sleeping pad or three quarter length Neo Air, uh, a shorter piece of closed cell foam. Two actually, I I was cold the first three nights, so I took Ian's extra piece of closed cell foam so together I had another basically well added up to another three-quarter length pad in foam so double pads then uh the feathered friends vireo the 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 zipperless tube sleeping bag and a big down jacket of you know pound and a half down jacket yeah we were a similar setup i think our we ended up first night we had to camp at like twelve thousand feet because of the just the way the things shook out on our approach and when we started and uh that was like very that was one of the coldest nights i've ever had it was like we were matt and i were hard hardcore spooning and both very cold um but we had similar setups matt actually had a vireo as well uh he was quite cold pretty much the whole trip uh i had a a 20 degree quilt which i found nice and toasty but yeah same kind of thing three-quarter length pad chunk of foam at the bottom 
big parka, uh, and I'd sleep in my ski pants, you know, and sometimes gloves, sometimes a hat, but usually not. I, after the first couple of days, it got pretty pleasant. We were sleeping bags open uh, most nights, but on snow pretty much every night. Okay, this is this is a that, this is a great question that you added, Spencer. My screen just went dark. Um, but how to organize a big traverse like this, and how, how, organizing and planning it for for on site and what you are describing as top down couloir skiing. So before we get into those specifics, describe to folks who may not be familiar with what top down couloir skiing is. What what does that term mean? And then let's get into the concept of, of organizing and planning for that type of traverse where there's top-down skiing. So that's like not going up what you come down, right? You come up the south side of the mountain and then you peek over the north side and you've never seen it before and you figure out your way down it and then you skin up the south side of the next peak and keep rolling that way. Um, which is, I think, a it's a as we've agreed, is a pretty fun style and I think that uh, as to me is kind of like a high standard of skiing because it takes more skill, right? And you're, you're not kind of booting up the couloir and feeling the snow and saying, oh, it's actually, you know, I'm feeling a little, you know, a little slab or whatever, or, you know, it's like, oh, this very steep thing, you know, like, I don't know if it's firm or edgy or, you know, whether it's going to be safe to ski, you just kind of get to the top and you have to make some decisions beforehand and you have to use accumulated experience to determine where you're going to go, right? Because then you get to the top, and if it's not skiable, you're not top-down Kular skiing. You're going back and around, right? Which is a bummer. Um, so I think that was... It's hard. This is a short answer. I think that this is kind of tying into the last question, is like the training... I th- a guide buddy of mine once said, you, you know, you can't teach somebody to sleep on snow, ski a big mountain, and climb a big mountain all in one day, right? You got to you got to reduce the number of things you're pushing your limit on at the same time. Right. And so this like getting ready for these things, right? Like Jed's doing big stuff in the Tetons all winter. So this, it's not like you're skiing big lines in the way that you haven't all winter and you're not skiing with a backpack, which you haven't all winter and you're not sleeping on snow, which you haven't all winter. And you're, you know, I think a big part of what I was thinking about is trying to, to the degree that I could reduce the number of things that were going to be very new. Um, and that gave, felt like it gave me a lot more flexibility, right? If I'm like, okay, my steep skiing, my like no fall, very steep skiing is feeling really good, right? I know that if there's snow, I can make it down, right? And that kind of gives you a lot more planning flexibility to say like, oh yeah, we've got, we're going in here, but we're going to have to chop through a cornice and it's going to be steep. And if you fall, it's going to be really bad, right? And that allows you to have, I think, more uncertainty in your plan um, to be able to audible more, which I found to be really helpful. Because at a certain point, you know, Google Earth doesn't have all the images and isn't going to convey the, the you know, these like micro terrain features that are going to be make or break, right? You know, how steep is, is, the, is the top of the Kular Alpine ice, right? Is it like 10 feet of vertical ice? right it's like you can't at a certain point these this is information you can't know ahead of time but the kind of more skills you have in the bank i think and the further from your threshold you're operating the more flexibility you have jed it sounds like from your 2000 you know you had spent a lot of time 
you know, I think you said upwards of over a decade or 12 years in, in Bishop on the east side there. So my guess is that you had were familiar with portions of the Traverse, but it wasn't a pure on-site, or do I have that? Which again, for me, I don't want, like, I'm not hung up on those terms or just, you know, th- right. that's the term that was used. So like, just curious from your perspective and the planning, was it just simply, not simply, but like, was it more piecing together terrain that you had been through before in some aspect? Totally. Yeah. A great deal that I, I, I did ski like the, the, the proper ski lines I did. I hadn't done many of those, but just the general layout of things and the, uh, minor passes i'd been through a lot of them and i had i'd literally seen a a lot of it you know summer and winter uh you don't you don't you know living in bishop day trip skiing ski guiding you know weekend skiing short trip traverses you don't ski the same stuff so it was like i said a lot of the actual ski lines were fresh but the the general rhythm of the range was was second nature you know uh and that goes a long ways yes it does i have one more question but do you guys have do you have questions for one another or anything you feel like i'm missing out on because i miss out on stuff quite a bit <laughs> oh i don't know did i pester you too much jed <laughs> no not at all not at all it was uh I like I like being a part of that that tension about like how much information do I want? How much information do I need? <laughs> you know, the the information exists, and that's it, it, to bring things full circle to some degree. Like, uh, that's our that you know, as adventurers and and citizens, quite frankly, you know, there's no shortage of information <laughs> available to us, right? And and we do get to choose which of that information we seek and the, and the red line is a little, little uh, small example of that bigger phenomenon we're all tackling. And, 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 and as such, I'm quite proud of us as a ski community for, for keeping it that way. That's a great point. Yeah. One of the arguments, right? Well, you know, like the beta, just don't look at the beta, but it's not that simple. Yeah. I agree. It's it's when it's there we're going to use it. Let's not put it there. But also we want to be inclusive and and transparent. And there's you know preserving adventure is runs runs right alongside exclusivity. In a sense, they're 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 close cousins. And and I don't think we need, I think we should be sensitive to that too. Yeah, there's definitely a balance to be struck between this, what I th- I think is the the good of kind of keeping the magic and the bad of gatekeeping, right? Yeah. Um, and this, like, how do you, you know, is it our job to decide basically who gets to do this in the future by providing too little or too much information? But I, yeah, I yeah. think there's a middle ground to be struck in terms of, like, not giving people so much information to get into trouble, but also not making those decisions for other people, right? Maybe I'm giving too much credit, but I feel like most people can pull up any of these apps or these mapping platforms and have a projected line, 
but then obviously look at the terrain and the terrain dictates best line oftentimes, right? So, I mean, that's why, for example, just comparing Spencer, your line and our line, we were both like, I mean, my Brent, my buddy Brian, who I, I, Kelly hasn't seen it yet, Jeb, but like, or Spencer's line, but we're both like, huh. We had never spoken to one of them. I, we, we honestly haven't, there's just not a lot of information. We're just looking at a map and like, okay, that kind of goes. But again, it speaks to the terrain sort of dictating where you can and can't go with certain technical aptitudes and so forth. So, or objective, like in our case, a lot of times it was like, we could get up that, but there's objective hazard. So like we're going around it. Um, but here's one thing that I, I, we want to encourage. Like I feel like, although it may not be super explicit in sort of our um, mission statement at the high route, it's like, I really, really want to encourage people to have their own adventures whatever that really looks like. But I'm hoping that looks like, again, I'm qualifying this, maybe outside uphilling at a resort and moving into like the backcountry and and then progressing into multi-day trips. Um, but I'm kind of curious, like what would you say to someone who has some backcountry skiing experience, like the typical, like they go on day trips but they haven't started to move into like moving from point A to point B or in a loop uh, on a multi-day situation. Well, uh, yeah, just some words to encourage folks to kind of, I'm, I'm really into this sort of like mental wellness through imagining <laughs> a big traverse. I think it's very healthy actually. So anyhow, yeah, what would you say to folks? Jason, you explicitly used the word progressing and, and Spencer described it quite aptly you know the idea of of a progression uh on a on a in spencer's case and a seasonal level and, and and you're sort of jason referring to a career if you will progression and and i think that uh pro progression at its most basic can can start even in the day trip phase you know i'd say that that like to, to that to that person you're describing jason i'd i'd say like start looking at your day trips with with more adventure in mind you know even if it's familiar terrain look at it differently reverse the loop or or whatever you know i think uh hut trips you know are are are, are an awesome next step hut or yurts where you're you're planning food and 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 keeping your boots dry but you're not dealing with camping stuff uh and then after that it's it's base camp style camp outs you know the jackson lake moran camp thing the the anywhere every range has its has its opportunity for that you know the real gentle progression is to do that in terrain you're familiar with day tripping you know Think, think small steps. You know, I just want to reiterate that. Uh, choose choose friendly endeavors. Uh, going all the way back to, to to Jason's introductory comments on on what's what's sexy now is the straight line and the and the and the radness. Uh, it is it is possible to ski some of the raddest terrain. 
in in a multi day setting, but you're not like to, to to echo Spencer's point. You're not going to get there doing both those at once. You're not going to do your rata stuff and your first multi day trips together. You know, push the boat out in in different directions at different times. Yeah, I think that's a great way to think about the kind of like pushing these different skill sets. And the thing that I think has been helpful for me is this kind of like skiing when the snow is bad too, right? Or this like, I think I started touring this way and I think a lot of folks do this kind of like, oh, we'll tour from 7 to 11 or 7 to noon. We give ourselves plenty of margin in the afternoon and that sort of thing. Or like only, you know, like don't go skiing if it's like hasn't snowed in two weeks or that sort of thing. And I think one of the things that I have seen in folks is I think like a also a fear of bad snow conditions, right? Or this like skiing at 5 p.m. or those sorts of things that to me from, if you if your goal is to go do a ski traverse, like you're gonna ski at 6 p.m., you're probably gonna ski some bad snow at some point, right? And I think that's another kind of skill set to like go out when it's like, oh, we don't know what it's like, but we'll just go and have some fun. Um, and I think for me, that's been a big learning experience that the snow rarely is that bad. And it's usually pretty fun anyways. And then you get to go skiing more too. But um, but I think building comfort with those factors too, right? This kind of like, all right, we're on a timetable or we're going places, um, right? Even if it's we're going skiing at 4 p.m. and we want to be back at a particular time, right? These are all different skills beyond this, can you navigate the terrain? But the kind of, can you correctly estimate where you're going to be when and kind of manage yourself on a bigger timetable, right? And kind of correctly estimate how much gas you have left in the tank, right? And how long it's going to take you to go over that pass and then the next pass and kind of start making plans that hold yourself a little bit more accountable to those guesses as opposed to the like, oh, we'll just wake up early and go ski the line, right? And we'll get there when we get there. Uh, but kind of building those hunches more because I find that to be really helpful, right? If it's, you know, 4.30 and you maybe have one more pass to do and you have to decide whether to go over the next thing or stay where you are or whether you'll be able to ski the next couloir if it's starting to refreeze, right? Or those sorts of, and have fun doing it, right? Those are skills to put in the bag too, right? And I think that, especially here in the Wasatch, it's so convenient. People just ski nice snow when they want to. And I think that a lot of folks miss out on a lot of good skiing because they don't do that, you know, and often there is a lot of good snow and you don't suspect there will be. That there's, there's, there's limits to that, right? Within, within, you know, within risk tolerance, within risk matters, right? Or, or hazardous, you know, avalanche hazards are often correlated with poor skiing, you know, they're often correlated with really good skiing too. Uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No, yeah. I, I totally yeah, yeah. agree. I'm not saying go out and like thread the needle. I'm just saying like, if it hasn't snowed in two weeks, like, you know, see what the wind scallops are like to ski. Right. But maybe there's something there. The ski quality and avalanche hazard have this like lumpy nonlinear relationship, right? The best ski quality is associated with poor stability and the worst ski quality is off is associated with, with, instability and then the middle ground it can go either way i don't know there's something there some graph <laughs> no i agree i think it's like learn to love crappy 
you know, what we traditionally might consider crappy conditions. I, I certainly have because Jed, maybe you're not there yet, but you're also a professional guide. But like, you know, with two children, right? Like my days, my work was not bringing me out into the wilderness. So I was like, I'm going. And I've burned through lots of partners who are like, dude, what are you doing? I'm like, this is great. We're outside. A lot of non-powder days. Yeah, and it, that that level of of commitment to the, to the experience itself is is rare, quite frankly. You know, it, it, it's hard. I, I'd say you know, there's the fair weather. The fair weather skier is is a real thing. What what I think it's one of the things I, I think is lost in this general uh, topic here is that you you can't be ready for the the deepest raddest day if you only hunt for the deepest raddest day you got to be you got to have your systems down and your fitness up on the on the the average days so that you are you are ready to to bust out the 10,000 feet on the on the deep powder day or you're ready when it finally snows in California to go and do your 16 day traverse you know if you're just sitting around waiting for the prime time you're not gonna be ready for when it happens yeah i would agree and you gotta have more fun like the more days you can find fun the less you know the more you can be a fair weather skier and still get out you know and tour your 50 or 75 or 100 days if you're if it's if you can find more of that joy and you don't need it to be overhead right on like super stable 45 degree overhead right it can be you know, six inches of recrystallized snow in a pretty big line. Um, and the, I think the more you, it's like almost more of a, a meditative exercise to like find to, I don't know. I, I would agree that this, like the, the youth these days are like into the, you know, big and fast and deep and they're not, not every day is like that. And I think when we get too fixated on the, like what the p- best possible conditions are, everything else seems a little lackluster. And I think that there's a ton of fun to be had skiing when there's not three feet of fresh, you know, I think they had the wrong parents. They, they, (laughs) 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 although my older child who enjoys being out in in the woods and sliding on snow, like he grew up in a household Well, he grew up out West. I grew up in the East. Right. So it was like, unless we had to wear trash bags, you know, I was like, the trash yeah. bag rule when we're wearing <laughs> trash bags, which we've all probably done. Certainly Jed, if you grew up in the East, you've done plenty. I've done plenty in the East and now repeated here in bend. Like that's sort of my <laughs> threshold. I'm like, if I'm wearing a trash bag, maybe I need to be doing something else today. Oh, for sure. There's an end. <laughs> well, I really appreciate it. Um, I, like yeah part of well i don't i don't have to be shy about this a lot of times interviewing folks or talking to folks is self-serving like i'm interested to hear what they have to say which in this particular case i'm interested in both of what you have to say i'm also like just trying to get reinvigorated for another planning you know just to plan my own traverse and like get fit and also be in a mentally in a good yeah i'm still i should probably talk to dave a little bit i'm a little bit mentally like who what happens if i well it could happen to anyone you could blow your leg out anywhere 
anytime. But now I feel like I'm predisposed to that. So I'm a little bit like, hmm, all right. So, but it's motivated me. And I think the intent here is to also motivate other folks to like, you know, dream big. Oh yeah. Go on ski traverses. They're so fun. I think so too. Thanks folks for listening and please take a moment to subscribe to the podcast and head over to thehighroute.com. You got to remember those hyphens to learn more about what we're up to and how you can be involved. Lastly, the theme music you've heard comes from Albuquerque-based band Storms in the Hill Country from their album The Self-Transforming. We'll link to it on the website and the show notes. Pay attention to the sounds Pay attention to your dreams Pay attention to what's all around And everything that's in between See my beauty in you And I become the mirror that can't close its eyes I see my beauty in you And I become the mirror that can't close its eyes Thank you.